0: Welcome to Season 3 of Sea Salt and Parm. I'm Michaela from The Millennial Outside, a teller of stories, a lover of food, a wanderer of wild places, and a wearer of many hats. This is me sharing the simple things in life that I find extraordinary. Can I tell you a story? Each year when I was a kid, we'd make the 1,300-mile trek from our home in Colorado to my parents' hometown of Eugene, Oregon. Some years, more than once. There were grandparents and cousins, old houses to be explored, and new sites to take in, but one of the things I remember most from those trips was the food. Coming from eastern Colorado, where I was convinced the only thing we could grow in our dry, clay-rich soil were garishly large turnips, the Pacific Northwest felt like a different world. There was a persistent blanket of fog that always seemed like it hung in Pendleton, Oregon. We'd cross Deadman Pass, the views outside the window playing peekaboo, until we descended into the Columbia River Gorge. As we straddled the Washington-Oregon state line, gone were the windswept prairies and dry mountains of my home in the Mountain West. They were replaced by temperate rainforests, fed by raging rivers and cascading waterfalls. Trees like giants lined the road, and green things grew in every available inch of soil. When we'd pull up to our grandparents' house in Eugene, the air itself felt wet, and often was. On average, it rains 151 days per year there. I was an absurdly picky eater as a kid. My beige-only food phase lasted well into kindergarten, and I was highly suspicious of anything out of the ordinary. One morning, my sister and I sandwiched between my dad and my grandpa in his old pickup truck, towing a boat behind us as we headed up the Mackenzie River to go fishing. I spent the entire drive obsessing over the fact that I'd watched my grandma put mayonnaise on my sandwich that morning and had been too scared to tell her I was a strictly anti-condiment type of a kid. We spent the day on the river pulling in fish, which my grandpa would later smoke. I don't think anyone managed to convince me to actually try the floppy trout we caught along the river, but I remember being in awe of the fact that you could pull real food out of nature like that. When we fished at home, we'd pull in teeny tiny brook trout that we'd throw back, if we were lucky. When we drive out to the coast, there was creamy clam chowder served out of bread bowls at a spot on the water called Moe's. There was saltwater taffy that I'm convinced tastes the best when it's made under an ocean breeze, even though you can find it in every tourist town in America. Then there were the blackberries. My mom's dad, my papa, lived in a beautiful old house on a hill. Papa and his wife Bea were adventurers and world travelers, and their house was full of interesting things that each held a story. While I loved poking around their house, it wasn't very kid-friendly, per se. When my sister and I got too antsy to play quietly in the living room, we'd head outside, under those towering evergreen trees, and trek up the alley next to the house. Several houses up, blackberry bushes grew thick. My dad warned us that here, blackberries were often seen as a weed and were sprayed with poison as such, but in my papa's alley, the neighbors let the blackberries grow thick. We'd fill buckets and bowls and whatever we could with the sweet berries. Eating fistfuls of them as we harvested. Now I know that Colorado has its own bounty to give, if you know where to look. Hatch green chilies and palisade peaches and the sweet corn. But the abundance of this land will never quite compare to the Pacific Northwest. Amongst the jumping salmon and the sugar-sweet blackberries and the bounty from the sea, there's one food from Oregon that I often overlooked as a kid, but have been thinking about a lot lately. Oregon's state nut is round and little, with a caramel-colored husk and a creamy white interior. It's grown in orchards across the state, and until I was in college, I only knew it by its French drive name, which is what my grandparents called it, a filbert. I had somehow managed to make it 17 years without ever having tried Nutella until my future sister-in-law introduced me to it. I know some people eat it on crepes, or maybe dip strawberries in it or something. There's nothing quite as pleasurable as eating Nutella straight out of the jar with a spoon, which is how Kelly first offered it to me. While everyone else on our backpacking trips is eating tuna out of tinfoil packets, I'm eating Nutella with a spoon. That, or mini-brie. Thanks to Nutella, most of you probably know Oregon's state nut by its English drive name, the hazelnut. A little over three months ago, a sweet little puppy joined our family. She's a sort of caramel, honey color on top with a creamy white belly. We'd seen her picture on Petfinder a week before we actually got to meet her. We spent days lobbing potential names back and forth, and even after we brought her home, we called her Puppy for a solid day before Topher suggested Hazelnut. It was perfect. At the time, the name just slid into place. But if you know me, you know that I'm prone to find, or create, depending on your viewpoint, deeper meaning in most things. Before I was born, my parents had a dog named Izzy. After Izzy, there was Zoe, who I grew up with. My first puppy's name was Rosie, with a Z, and then, of course, there was Mackenzie. Like her predecessors, Mackenzie was an all-black female dog. She was named after the river in Oregon my dad grew up fishing on. She was my heart dog. The moment I saw her in the shelter at age 12, pushed to the back of the kennel by the bigger, louder puppies, her ears pinned back in fear, Our eyes met and those little ears popped up tall. I knew she and I were destined to be best friends. She was supposed to be my little sister's dog, but life has a funny way of working out. At 18, there was no place for Kenzie in our changing family, something I felt deeply myself at the time, so she and I went to college together. We lived in a studio apartment where she taught me to love hiking, slept on my bed when I got scared living on my own, and licked away my tears when I got lonely. Late on Friday nights, after I'd finished my shift making pizzas, I'd pick her and my overnight bag up, and we'd drive the two hours down to where Topher lived, still in high school, my subwoofer shaking the car, Kenzie's head out the window. The first time I think I knew I loved Topher was the first day he met Kenzie. He'd never had a big, rambunctious dog like her, and they played fetch for hours. Despite her weighing almost 60 pounds and definitely not being a lap dog, he insisted she ride on his lap on the way home. From then on, the three of us were a family. In the 15 and a half years Kenzie was in my life, she was my constant companion and my best friend. She saw me through my awkward early teenage years, my parents' divorce, going to college, our chaotic early 20s, getting married. Every life milestone, Kenzie was right there next to me, hoping for a hike, a Starbucks run, and for me to turn the base up. In August 2021, when we said goodbye, I had been mentally preparing myself for the moment for years, but the grief shocked me. 2021 and 2022 were really hard years, for more reasons than just losing Mackenzie, but not having her by my side through all the storms we weathered made it that much harder. I knew I couldn't rush bringing home a new puppy. We had big trips planned and weren't sure where we were headed when our lease ended, but more than that, I wasn't ready to open my heart up to a new best friend. Even after a year when we both agreed that it was time to start looking, I didn't know if I'd truly ever be ready. We went to the animal shelter one Sunday afternoon and sat in the yard with an adorable squirmy puppy who wouldn't stop licking Topher's face, and I could see his heart melting, but we went home without her. I was worried that no puppy would ever seem good enough. I was worried I would resent them for not being Kenzie. I was worried that I'd never find anything I'd love that much again. The thing about love, though, is it's infinite. It sounds almost cliche to say, but the moment we brought little Hazelnut home, all my worries were assuaged. I don't love her the same as I loved Kenzie. Kenzie will always hold a special place in my heart that nothing will ever compare to, but it doesn't have to. I learned that I can love Hazelnut just as much. I love the way she has to be near us, preferably touching at all times. I love the way she sleeps on her back, with her hips splayed out, and her silly little ears that aren't quite up, aren't quite down, and betray her every emotion. I love her unadulterated joy when it snows, and the little piggy noises she makes when she's happy. I love the way she wakes me up every morning by putting her front paws on the bed and laying her upper body across mine. We've only been best friends forever for four months now, and every day I'm learning more things I love about her. The amount of joy she's reinfused into our lives is immeasurable. I read somewhere once that one of the best parts of being human is getting the chance to experience the unconditional love of many dogs over the course of our lives. I can't wait to spend the rest of her life getting to love her. If you had to commute by train every day, maybe the sound of the metro might not be soothing. But I have to say, there's something about foreign train stations I just love. Enjoy the sounds of a French train station for the next minute in lieu of a commercial break. Rien. Direction étoile, prochain train dans une minute, le suivant dans quatre minutes. Just before my ninth birthday, we moved into a brand new subdivision on the very edge of Denver's metro area. It was a golf course community, and the course itself was pretty much the only thing out there—the impossibly short, manicured greens a stark relief against the golden prairie grasses. On one side of the subdivision was a paved road named after the gun club it led to. To the south was the city dump, and to the east the road quickly turned to dirt—the very edge of civilization. An old woman who had lived in one of the farmhouses that dotted the prairie once told me and my little sister that the mafia used to take those that had wronged them out to that dirt road, chase them with their cars, and shot them down. Driving home at night, everything was pitch black, and we were so far out there, we didn't get pizza delivery for several years. I loved it. Ours was the 34th house built, which meant my entire childhood was spent watching my neighborhood grow up. The first year the pool opened, the heater was broken the whole summer. We'd find frogs and mice and baby rabbits floating in the frigid water in the mornings, the wildlife confused by the prairie turning into suburbia. For a while, the lot next to ours was where all the fill dirt and sand was staged for construction. We'd take our matchbox cars out to the giant piles, being careful to avoid the nails and chunks of rebar that were always strewn about in our bare feet. It was a long time before other kids moved in, so we made friends with the foremen at the construction trailers and baked them cookies and brownies riding our bikes down the street, our pet rabbits in the baskets to deliver them. In some neighborhoods, the telltale jingle of an ice cream truck sends folks scrambling for cash, but on our street, the sound of mariachi music being blasted from the speakers of a food truck drew all the construction workers to lunch. On the whole, my mom erred on the side of suspicion, but when it came to food, she was solidly distrustful. My dad would barbecue chicken, and then she'd microwave my sister and I's for a solid minute to ensure it was salmonella-free and outright inedible. Our meals out happened at chain restaurants, and adventurous was takeout food from the local Chinese restaurant. She called the Mexican food trucks that congregated on our street each day roach coaches. Needless to say, we never ate at one, but they fascinated me. The colorful pictures on the side, displaying burritos and tacos and tortas, the cheerful music the colorful glass bottles of jaritos, and the mouth-watering smell that wafted up from them. While the food truck drivers would capitalize on the influx of construction workers by driving around to the various sites at lunchtime, down the highway another vendor capitalized on the traffic by always being where the construction workers could find her, in the dirt lot at the intersection of the highway and the road that led to the reservoir. We called her the hot dog lady, but she was a coworker of my mom's in a past life. I don't know what led her to buy a hot dog cart and set up on the edge of town, but she was there with her multicolored umbrella and a lawn chair six days a week, selling hot dogs to the construction workers that drove between Home Depot and the subdivisions popping up and getting a fierce tan. By the time I went to college, others had realized the genius in her placement, and that corner turned into an impromptu market. There was a guy who sold sunglasses, folding tables filled with melons or peaches, depending on what was in season, and the local kettle corn vendor, George. Along with hot dogs, Hot Dog Lady also sold the official food of Denver, though that honor wouldn't be bestowed on the humble, tinfoil wrap breakfast food until 2017. I'm sure the food trucks that cruised our neighborhood had far superior versions, but the first time I ever tasted a breakfast burrito was on the side of the highway at the hot dog cart. Denver really and truly is a melting pot. While its roots stem from miners and cowboys, there's no longer big ranches in the area, like you'd find in Montana or Wyoming or Texas. Denver's Western heritage is summed up by the yearly National Western Stock Show. There's a huge Hispanic population here, but our city is increasingly seeing immigrants from all over the world. There's tech, but there's also outdoor companies. I'd argue it's hard to put a finger on the pulse of Denver, because there's not one thing that defines it and as it rapidly grows, its personality is ever-evolving. If there's one thing that defines Denver culture, though, it's the breakfast burrito, stuffed with Colorado-style green chili. New York has pizza, Portland has coffee, and we have breakfast burritos. A flour tortilla filled with eggs and potatoes and some sort of breakfast meat, sometimes bacon or sausage, often chorizo, and doused with Colorado-style green chili. This is the most important part. Taco Bell and McDonald's sell breakfast burritos around the country, but it's not the same if it isn't filled with green chili. Specifically, Colorado-style green chili. On a summer morning at a Denver-area farmer's market, a spicy, smoky smell envelopes the entire street. Follow the smoke and you'll find a batch of hatch green chilies from New Mexico being turned in a big cast-iron roaster, blistering their green exteriors. Still hot, they go into plastic bags where they steam, the skin shrinking off and leaving behind the flesh of the pepper, ready to be folded into mac and cheese, smashed onto a burger, baked into a croissant, or one of the countless other ways Denver cooks incorporate our favorite seasonal produce into their dishes. The best, though, is green chili. I'll admit, I've tried making green chili multiple times and have always failed. The internet doesn't understand Colorado style green chili, a thick sauce that's more orange than green variably spicy, and dotted with chunks of pork. If anyone popularized breakfast burritos made with green chili, it's Santiago's. The first restaurant was opened by a Colorado local in 1991, and now there are 28 locations across the metro area, tubs of Santiago's green chili in the frozen section at the grocery store, and when Denverites think breakfast burrito, they think Santiago's. Some managers bring in boxes of donuts for their staff. In Denver, managers bring in plastic bags filled with Santiago's burritos, marked mild, hot, or half-and-half. The foil-wrapped burritos are thin and spicy, the meat varying based on the day. When you walk into a Santiago's in the morning, there are stacks of burritos rolled and ready to go as soon as you hand over $2.75. A well-oiled machine. In college, breakfast burritos became our staple. We'd pick them up on the way to skiing or on the way to the trails. They nursed our first hangovers. At this point, pretty much any place that's open before noon in Denver serves breakfast burritos. I've had them at hipster coffee shops, at hole-in-the-wall Mexican restaurants that share space with auto body shops. Before COVID, when I went to the office, there was a man that drove around the Boulder Business Parks in a minivan, a faded magnet on the side, the only defining feature. Someone with a window view would send out an email, and we'd all come out and stand in line to buy burritos out of his cooler. Once, our 200-person office broke the corporate golden rule and started a reply-all, many, many, many stanza haiku via email on Breakfast Burrito Man. Everyone has their favorite. Mine is from Black Belly up in Boulder. The whole animal, sustainable butcher, puts tater tots in their giant burritos. It's heaven. Topher likes a little spot in the highlands that's been there since time immemorial called a Rujo's. I think, maybe, it's like a dog. Everyone thinks they have the best dog, and everyone is right. The East Coast can keep their bacon, egg, and cheese. Austin can have its breakfast tacos. I know that if I ever leave Colorado, one of the things I'll miss the most is a fluffy tortilla, steamed in tinfoil, filled with eggs and potatoes, bacon, cheese, and so much green chili, it's oozing out the bottom. Thanks for listening, friends. If you like Sea Salt and Farm, please subscribe and leave me a rating which helps the algorithm suggest my podcast to more listeners. You can find me on Instagram at The Millennial Outside.